If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I have skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. And welcome to another episode of Zach on Film. This week, we are traveling back to 1941 San Francisco as we follow Sam Spade as he tries to find his partner's murderer and some mysterious falcon statue as we talk the Maltese Falcon. Yay, Maltese Falcon. Now, I will point this out for people who have not listened to our other show that we do, one of our many other shows in the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. Um, We do another show called Major Spoilers, and occasionally we sit down and we will read a prose book. And many years ago, we reviewed Maltese Falcon, the book, the novel, on the Major Spoilers Podcast. Rodrigo, this is one of your favorite books? It is. It's one of the few books that I've read more than once. And why? um, I don't know. I think it's partially because it's pretty light. Um, You know, it's like it's like intense and there's a lot of stuff going on. But the the wording of it is just really straightforward and good. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's a cool story. And Sam Spade is a cool guy who's also pretty flawed um, and kind of a jerk. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, But still manages to be to be likable. Um, and you know, I had to read it for school the first time around. And then I was like, oh, this is actually pretty good. I could read this again. So give us the rundown, Zach, of the story. Mm -hmm. And we're going to touch on a couple of uh, major points that hopefully you picked out on. And then we'll give uh, you a chance to ask some questions because I understand you have some questions about this book or about the movie. Yep. And so on and so forth. All right. So the Maltese Falcon, uh, starts and we're in a detective agency and, um, two partners work there, Sam Spade, our main character, and his partner, Miles Archer. And so it comes in, and a woman comes in and is needing of their services. She uh, is needing them to follow a guy for her who she's worried about and possibly dangerous and stuff. And so uh, both of them, both of the uh, two detectives are attracted to this lady. And so Miles... Yeah. Uh, he, he essentially calls dibs and takes the case and he's out there and he goes to follow this man and he's shot dead, mm-hmm. dead. And so then it goes on from there and the person he was following ends up murdered right. and the police starts, yep, Thursby and they, he, they start suspecting Spade, right? The police, uh, yeah. This police starts suspecting Spade of the murder of Thursby and um, there's also a plot line with Archer's wife, 
Right. And that's part of why the police think that Spade has committed some of these murders is because uh, Archer's wife and him are supposedly a thing. And she right. she even asks if Spade murdered uh, Archer so mm-hmm. they could be together. Mm-hmm. And so that's a plot line that's carried out um, through the story. So, And then eventually you know, get to a Falcon story. Sure. And the Falcon story is that um, all of these people, right. Gutman, um, O'Shaughnessy, um, uh, Peter Laurie's character, um, Joel Cairo, yeah, Cairo, um, are all after this. And Thursby, Falcon. we're all yeah, after Thursby. this Thursby, or we're all after this Falcon that's worth millions of dollars potentially. Supposedly, yeah, and how well, Sam Spade gets intertwined in all of this. But you know, oh, was big that lightning? Thunder, yeah. Okay, jeez, we've got a big thunderstorm going on here. You'll probably hear that in a second, Rodrigo. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah, I heard a pop, and so I know the electricity was flying there. <laughs> um, so, But let me ask you, though, and Rodrigo, jump in on this, too, because in the first 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the movie, we mm-hmm. meet Sam Spade, who smokes, and that's fine. I mean, he rolls his own cigarette, so he's tough. I would just like um, to say that I understand why smoking seems cool, because... Humphrey that, Bogart that whole cool. yeah, He made it look cool with the whole lighting of the pushing oh, yeah, down yeah. thing. That was cool. The little lighter. Yeah, the yeah, lighter yeah. that lights the match thing. Um, so he smokes, he drinks... Uh, he has affairs with his partner. He doesn't seem too broken up when Archer is killed. Um, mm-hmm. What then makes Sam Spade? I mean, he basically threatens to wring O'Shaughnessy's, uh, O'Shaughnessy's neck at the end of the movie. What makes Sam Spade then such a wonderful character in this movie? Now, remember the Dashiell uh, um, Hammett or was it? Uh, yeah, Dashiell Hammett. Yeah, Dashiell mm-hmm. Hammett wrote multiple stories. Sam Spade became a, a regular radio um, mystery show, you know, other books, other TV shows, et cetera, made off Sam Spade. What, Zach, makes this character so memorable in this movie? Why is he so likable? Or is he likable? Uh, I think he's kind of that, possibly, um, depending on the, I mean, this time period, one of the first kind of heroes that you like, but almost feel bad about liking. Mm. To a point where uh, he's a hero character and he is following the law and is trying to do his job, but he's also not the most morally ethical person, I would say. He kind of skirts around stuff and is willing to mm, possibly bend some rules to get what's going on done, and he's not above threatening people and he bursts with anger, and so I think that character has some draws to it like you see that in um now you kind of be like a um oh what's john ham's character in mad men whatever his name is uh, mm-hmm. and dan um, draper yeah, yeah. don draper mm-hmm. don draper is where and uh walter white in breaking bad kind of those characters where you you have to you're conflicted on whether you want to root for the main character or not hmm. okay I'll accept that. Um, Did you know that Sam Spade, though, is based on Dashiell Hammond himself because he did work as a Pinkerton detective Mm -hmm. in the 1920s? Uh, And then he also based a lot of what Sam Spade was on what his fellow detectives thought themselves to be. Yeah, I I read that a little bit. I think the reason why... We all, and when I say we, I mean us dudes, I think, react. <laughs> oh, hey, the, the ladies all like do. like a Bogart well, and Sam Spade, too. And, and, and it's probably a, a similar issue is that 
um, Sam Spade is kind of the guy that we want to be to a certain degree. You know, he's dangerous, he's rough, and he can do things and get things accomplished on his own. And his mom isn't walking into his room and like, <laughs> take out the trash. It's like, mom, I got uh, birds podcasts. to find. Yeah. <laughs> I got Pokemans to catch. Right? Nobody would tell Sam Spade when and where to catch his Pokemans. Yeah, that is true. Yeah. I wouldn't want to. Why, he'd sock you right in the face. (laughs) Humphrey Bogart, I mean, this is a role that made Humphrey Bogart a star. Right. Right. Um, This set him up to then go into Casablanca, set him up to go play African Queen, all these other great movies. Um, He was not the first choice to play Sam Spade. Oh, it was, was uh, George Raft, who had been in a number of, you know, leading man type positions. Um, but he, George Raft, turned it down because he didn't want to work with this, I don't know, this guy that I've never heard of before, John Houston, mm-hmm. according to Raft. Uh, John Houston today is revered as one of the great, not only great uh, directors, but actors, um, writers. Um, and John Houston wrote the script, wrote the uh, screenplay, the adaptation of uh, the book for the big screen. And in this day and age, this is something that I also find very fascinating. In this day and age where audiences complain left and right about, oh, we're remaking the Spider-Man movies, we're remaking the Batman movies, we're remaking this, that, and the other thing. By 1941, this was the third remake of the Maltese Falcon. The first one was done in 1931. Uh, but it was basically banned from the movie theaters uh, because it was um, a little bit too lewd. Too mm. sexy. Too sexy. Uh, and then the second one was, was called Satan Met a Lady. That was in 1936. That had uh, Betty Davis in it. So, listeners, if you want to go back and find out some, some of who our big crushes are, celebrity crushes, mm. go back and listen to one of our top five episodes where Betty Davis uh, makes an appearance on that list. Uh, and then it was the other she thing. Does. About, she walks in, looks around and says, what a dump. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when Satan Mental Lady, uh, it was more written as a comedy than a serious drama. And so That's John Houston said, I will rewrite this. Give me a break. Let me direct. And you'll see John Houston again. And you'll probably. Re- well, maybe you won't recognize his voice, but you'll see John Houston again when we get to um, Chinatown. Uh, oh, but he was a big director, directed a lot of um, big stars, mm-hmm. and this is this is his first directorial debut. But I find it fascinating that, again, in the span of 10 years, Maltese Falcon was remade three times. Why do you think that is, Rodrigo? Well, back then, I think there was a lot, like, I don't know, the budgets for the movies weren't that crazy. I mean, I... I here, let, let, let me let me structure that a different way that makes sense to human beings. Um, <laughs> I think that although you wouldn't necessarily know it from reading the accounts, there was a lot less pressure on filmmakers because the budgets weren't as astronomical as they are today. Mm-hmm. So you could potentially remake a movie. And if that movie was a flop, we're talking about a movie that didn't show in the majority of the country. Yeah. So if that movie didn't work, you could just pack up the movie and do it again. And 
people would literally not know. They would not know that this same movie came out 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Or maybe people just, just, well, but people were going to the movies left and right. It wouldn't be, I mean, I can see your point, Rodrigo, but for true movie going fans in New York, Atlanta, California, Mm -hmm. um, the movie theater was the place to go. So they would have probably seen this and then just said, Oh, okay, here's a, another adaptation of one of our favorite books of, of the time period. Oh yeah. I mean, and that's the thing is this is the forties, right? Right. 1941. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the things, a lot of the rules, kind of like the unwritten rules of things weren't established yet or had been done away with because, you know, movies in the 30s were a certain way and movies in the 40s were a certain way and movies in the 50s were a certain way. And the way that we think about movies is basically movies from the 80s forward right. have these have all these rules to them. But back in these days, those rules hadn't been invented yet. Mm-hmm. So you could have two competing studios use it doing the, the exact same movie at the exact same time, for example, and releasing the same movie and, you know, it being okay or not being as big of a deal and being like a legitimate uh, competition thing as opposed to something like, you know, Capote and then in Cold Blood or whatever, mm-hmm. like being released within, you know, five years or two years of each other. So, um, and also part of the problem was this thing called the Hayes Code, the Hayes yeah. Office. Are you familiar with the Hayes Office? It's not here. No. It's not here. I was hoping it was. I no. read a little bit of it. and it, So they, what is the, what is the Hayes Code? Um, well, from what I read just about this movie, they kind of, uh, what they seem to be is an ethics board or yeah, kind so, of looking over content of film. So basically this uh, church minister, Presbyterian uh, minister, uh, William H. Hayes, Thought it was his duty to re- rehabilitate Hollywood. So he went in and starts rattling, banging, you know, the gong, getting people all riled up. And then um, was made, under Warren G. Harding, um, Postmaster General. He served and then uh, served 25 years as president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, where he went in and said, here's what will make a good movie. Here's what won't make a good movie. And if you don't follow these codes of conduct... And there were 25 of them. You can find them online. Um, You couldn't use any profanity. No suggestive uh, nudity or silhouettes or anything of lecherous intent. No illegal traffic and drugs. Any inference inference of sex perversion. Couldn't show white slavery. Um, You couldn't show um, relationships between people of different races. Um, you couldn't talk about sexual hygiene or venereal diseases. You couldn't talk about, um, anything having to do with childbirth. You couldn't show any scenes of childbirth in the Hayes Code. Uh, certainly you couldn't show children's sex organs, uh, ridicule of the clergy, um, willful offense, uh, offense to any nation, race, or creed was not permitted in, uh, the Hayes Code in the, uh, the first, uh, first bits. And then there were things that you could do, things that you could do, but might be considered in poor taste. Uh, the use of firearms could be considered in poor taste. Theft, robbery, safe cracking, dynamiting of trains uh, could be seen as not uh, appealing to the Hayes Code. And so what would happen is, and this is what happened, and sometimes it's it's rarer today, but you know, a decade ago it was not uncommon as they're renovating a major movie theater mm-hmm. like the uh, the Fox Pavilion in um, in Atlanta. Uh, it's not uncommon then for people to find these missing reels of film because what would happen is 
this Hayes Code was used differently and interpreted differently from town to town. So if a movie actually came to our town, the uh, movie review committee would sit down and they would view it and they would physically say, OK, we have to cut out this section of the film because it's not allowed or this scene has to be cut out. And they just splice it together and run it. And most of the time, sometimes those sections were not back added back into the film before it shipped off to the next town. So in some cases, you can find entire scenes and entire reels that have been missing for decades because of these local sensor boards and the Hayes Code going through and snipping these things out from town to town as they as they migrated through. It was really I, – I mean, I can see how it happens, right? Mm-hmm. If we don't want the government to censor, then we have to censor ourselves. So let's right. get this this guy right. to come in and censor. The Comic Code Authority is the same exact way. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Motion Picture Association today is based on that same thing. It's a regulatory thing, self-regulatory. Mm-hmm. It has no government backing whatsoever. Um, and if you want to see a good movie about the MPAA, go watch this movie called This Movie Not Yet Rated, or it's just called Not Yet Rated. Yeah. Very good Movies documentary. Netflix. Yeah. It, I would recommend that you watch that. It really goes into the censoring of motion pictures. So uh, in the case of this movie being made multiple times, I can easily see why, because of the Hayes office, not allowing this films to be seen, that you have to tread very lightly. Now, in the book, Rodrigo, mm-hmm. nothing is taboo in the book no there isn't i mean the and it has been a long time since i saw it so you know in the book they it pretty explicitly says that they sleep together right um and then but in the movie it's pretty ambiguous Mm -hmm. and i think it even suggests that they didn't right well no there's no scenes of them going to bed together in fact right the only time you see humphrey bogart's or uh, sam spade's bed is at the very beginning and it's mm-hmm. one of those, uh, what are the Murphy beds that fold up or something and hide away? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you see him right in the very Again, beginning of the movie waking so cool. up. Yeah, no, I always yeah. wanted to have one of those too. And then the rest of the movie, it's just a sitting room area. Mm-hmm. And yep. so you never see her laying down. The other thing is, uh, of course, the um, any kind of innuendo toward homosexuality. And mm-hmm. certainly there are two characters that uh, come off as homosexual in the movie, um, done and treated very delicately. But in the book, they come out and say, Joel Cairo is homosexual. Um, I think uh, in the book they they refer to it as the fairy um, or the queer. Oh. And again, language of the time, right? right? Time. Um, and it's totally not acceptable today. No. But even in the movie, they treaded lightly in talking about um, Wilmer's character because mm-hmm. Sam Spade mm-hmm. kept, keeps referring to him as the gunsel, which is a term for a homosexual man that dates an old, a young man who dates an older man. Uh, and because Wilmer and uh, Gutman are together all the time, mm-hmm. Bogart is making that claim against him, too. So they're treading on a lot of very hot topics mm-hmm. very carefully in this movie. And did it work, Rodrigo? Did it not work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they like it's it's clear that they had to clean it up here and there but they still pushed the envelope of what they could do. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean there's like firefights and um drugging. I mean they drug yes. Sam Spade. Yeah. yeah. murder, arson, jaywalking. <laughs> there's all kinds of all kinds of dangerous things happening. What's there are some from a story perspective, Zach, what else can you share with us? You had some questions or some other thoughts that you wanted to share about the story as as it's seen on the big screen. And I would suggest you go uh, and read the book if you haven't. Yeah, it'll take you nice. it'll take you a couple of days to read. Um, 
Yeah, so, I mean, after a lot of that murder stuff, it pretty much turns into a dialogue fest of trying to find and track down this falcon uh, statue, which apparently was worth a lot of money. And that is interesting, because um, I read some of people talk about this movie, and they said, you essentially forget almost what the what the main plot of the movie is and you just kind of start focusing on character interactions through right. dialogue right which is interesting well i mean the book is just full of these kind of dialogue exchanges right yeah and you have to bring that out and you have to make these characters mm-hmm. believable and in one case you have to have a ro- rather lengthy dialogue exchange so that a story plot point can work right right so the first um the second well the drugging of Sam Spade by Gutman mm-hmm. uh, is really a fascinating scene, both in how they're telling the audience the story, but also setting up Humphrey Bogart getting drugged. So the first time that um, Sam Spade meets Gutman, uh, Gutman gives him a drink and says, oh, I never trust a man that doesn't drink. Right. And offers him cigar and Bogart is drinking a little bit of it and smoking a little bit of the cigar. And so that sets it up that if... Sam Spade is supposed to be trusted. He needs to partake in the drink. Right. The second time when he comes back to uh, Gutman's apartment, he sits down, Gutman pours him a drink and we never see Sam Spade touch the drink. And then Gutman starts to tell you this story about the Maltese Falcon, this jewel encrusted, um, bird uh, as an offering to the king of spain from the knights of malta and he goes on and on and on and on and he keeps pouring sam spade a drink says drink drink you know and he doesn't drink it but then as he keeps telling the story and as the dialogue keeps going for a long time mm-hmm. sam spade finally takes a drink and then by the time gutman is finished with his story sam spade passes out on the floor right brilliant 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 story Okay. Mm-hmm. And a great use of dialogue in this piece. The other thing that I didn't, didn't realize, and I now have to go back and watch this yet again, that entire scene, one take. Yeah. I, From the time he enters the room into the room mm-hmm. and Gutman's escorting him around and they're having their dialogue exchange and you're going in for close ups of Gutman as he's telling the story, all one take. I, I read that after I finished it. And I didn't even remember it. Like, I did, like, yeah. I don't... And I tried to find it again, and I just couldn't find it. I was trying to rush through a bunch of stuff. Right. But, yeah, that was... I mean, I I want to go raw, watch that, just watch that scene yeah, again. From a, that's from amazing. A technical, from a technical standpoint, yeah, yeah this is amazing. Seven minute, Seven minutes. Yes. Of, and if you're loading ten-minute film reels in there, you got to get Yeah, that's going. pretty much a reel. Yeah, you got to do the entire reel you're shooting in for one take. Yeah. Um... They rehearsed it for two days. Wow. And I don't remember how many takes they had to do, but timing had to be specific. And one of the reasons why so many people don't notice that it's one take is because they get involved in the story. Mm -hmm. And so ideally as a creator, film creator, hopefully that you become, you don't want people to notice technique, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to call attention. We've talked about this before. You don't want to call attention to special effects. You don't want to call attention to your shaky camera shot. You don't want to call attention to anything that has to do with the film because you want to draw the audience in. And even now, all these years later, when I think about that scene, I'm like, no, there's a cutaway to Humphrey Bogart. I know that there's a cutaway yeah, to Humphrey I swear Bogart. There, I swear there's one in there. All camera Apparently moves. Apparently not. All camera moves. 
And that's what makes it so amazing when you go back and look at it again. It's like, oh, really? No way. And that's why I want to go back and, and watch that again yeah. just to see how well it's done. The other thing that's amazing about that scene, not only just the dialogue and how you draw the audience in and, and get to play the trick in the mind, that was um, Sidney Greenstreet's really first day on the set. That was the first scene that they shot with him. Wow. And so for an actor to come up, and even with rehearsals for two days, to come in and give that performance in that scene mm-hmm. is shows the talent that Sidney Greenstreet brought to uh, the piece. That was his first film, too. Yeah, his first film. Yeah. He came from uh, a stage actor mm-hmm. is where he came from, stage uh, on the stage. And um, Hal Wallace, who is the producer on this, just basically said, hey, we want to you should cast this guy. He's got a great laugh. He's got this great look to him. Um, at the time, people estimate he was somewhere between 280 and I don't want to say 350 pounds. So I'm catching up to him pretty close, pretty quickly. Oh. But um, this performance. You can do it, Steven. I can do <laughs> yeah. it. I know I can. Keep going. So his performance and his character were so impactful in the movie that this, again, Sidney Greenstreet then later goes on in Casablanca, mm-hmm. uh, again with Peter Lorre, and we'll talk about him in just a moment again. Um, people liked him so much that the atomic bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was renamed Fat Man in honor of him, no. uh, of Gutman. And it's kind of weird, nice too, honor. that he gets the name Gutman, and he's this colossally fat guy, yeah. right? Well, definitely the books or, or the 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 names that the characters have in the book and, and by extension, the movie make a lot of right. sense. You know, um, Godman is a big fat guy. Sam Spade in the book is like this skinny, like mm-hmm. kind of sharp guy basically is, is what he is. Um, there's also the issue of, you know, like the violence thing mm-hmm. because the detective agency is Spade and Archer or Archer and Spade. You know, one is a bow and one's a sword, basically. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, anything else about the story or the characters that you want to talk about? You had a question. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. The At the very end of the film, when uh, everything is kind of been settled and it's determined the Falcon statue they thought, was the Maltese Falcon end up not and stuff, 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 stuff. And Sam Spade yeah, says, get hauled off. Yeah, people, people go are fly off. Yeah. And, uh, he says, someone asked what that statue is. And he says, this is the thing dreams are made of, I believe mm-hmm. is the line. Mm-hmm. And I recognized it. And I said, I should probably know what this is from or what this means. Or, I know this is somewhat significant, but I don't know why. So, what do you think it means? Let me just ask you that. I mean, regardless from what you've probably heard it before, because yeah. people are referencing this movie, right. right? So, what do you think it means? I'm I'm going to venture a guess. Okay, that it is about what the statue means, and that it wouldn't like people weren't overly upset that the Falcon was. Not that the right Falcon, because it meant that their adventure of trying to find the Falcon would be able to continue. Yeah, you're right, because here's the thing. 
everything that they do for years, for Gutman especially. He says he's been on the search for this falcon for 17 years. So his entire life has been refocused to finding this bird. As he reaches the end of this journey, he's willing to do anything to get it, but suddenly realizes, oh, wait, when I do get this bird, it's all over for me. Mm -hmm. What am I going to do next? Well, now that it's not the real bird, I can can continue on with my quest. Right. But in another way of thinking – why do people play the lottery? Why do people make that bet on black? Why do people, you know, take that risk to get that? I mean, why, why do people reward. play the lottery? Hopefully big reward. What's the reward? Lots of money. Okay. And a lot of people will dream of what they can do with all of right. this money, right? So. This is the thing. This bird represents the things that dreams are made of. I had a dream that I'm going to be able to do this and do this and do this and do this. The bird represents those dreams of people. Mm. Now, Rodrigo may have some other things to add on to this, especially how it ties back into Shakespeare, correct? Yeah. Um, supposedly, I mean, and people have read that this, the expression itself comes from Shakespeare. Um, I think... Uh, from the Tempest, and I think I have the the actual quote here somewhere. Okay. Um, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Uh, from the Tempest. Mm-hmm. That's Prospero saying that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there's there's a few ways to read that. I think you can, as, as Stephen said, is just sort of like, this incentive to follow your dream or, or, or this far off ideal of what your dream is. And when you achieve it, you will have everything you ever wanted. Um, the other thing is, is kind of a meta statement of what is this? Like, literally, this is nothing but a fake bird. But this is the stuff that this here story was made of. Like this entire thing revolved around the falcon. And the Falcon turned out to be nothing. So it's literally nothing but dreams and everything that happened, you know, being a fictional story is the dreams that came from the Falcon. Mm -hmm. There's another word that we use when we talk about something that has no bearing on the story, but is what leads the story through, right? Mm -hmm. It's called Mm -hmm. a MacGuffin. Right. Okay. Rodrigo, what's the, what's the MacGuffin? A MacGuffin is exactly the Maltese Falcon. It's it's a it's something that everybody wants, but has generally no bearing on the story. So you know, we never. You could argue that uh, Jules, um, like the briefcase in in Pulp Fiction, is a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. You could argue. You could. I mean, there's a lot of things in 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 history and 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 uh, or in uh, in film where the point is to get it rather than what it actually does. I mean, right. sure, it's it will it you know, Christ's cup will make you young forever, but we don't get to that until the very end of the film. It kind of doesn't matter what is in the Ark of the Covenant or what is in, you know, or 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 what uh that magic baby is going to do once until you get to the very end of the story. Mhm. And most and of the times, that that, and most of the time, when you do hit that point, mm-hmm. it really isn't as important as the journey to get there. 
Uh, right, at, exactly, at, and and often and often will provide a cheap out, right? Um, if it does actually do something, North by Northwest is the same way. Where, and we'll look at this. Cary Grant is mistaken, or Cary Grant or Jimmy Stewart. I forget which one because he uses them both. I'm pretty sure it's Cary Grant uh, is mistaken for somebody else, and he has something that these other people want, and so mm-hmm. he's chased across the country. Uh, after this thing and he's trying to figure out what this thing is and once you finally realize what this thing is it was not as exciting as yeah what put us on the edge of mount rushmore Mm -hmm. right and we'll watch that movie later on if you haven't ever watched north by northwest hitchcock uses the macguffin a lot yeah uh, and in fact he's i believe he's the one who coined the phrase macguffin okay um what an example of a past movie that we've watched on second film the uh buried treasure in the grave in good bad and ugly kind of be a MacGuffin. Yeah. To yes. an extent. Yeah. 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 And as Rodrigo said, the briefcase in uh, Pulp Fiction, yeah, briefly, also Pulp a MacGuffin. Yeah. So yeah, all of these things that just, that's our driving force mm-hmm. to get from here to there. Lost the, the TV series that MacGuffin, they use MacGuffins a lot in that, that mm-hmm. never pay off uh, to the end. And you'll see these things as they appear. Um, and so if you're not familiar with that term, that's a new term that you can write down. Um, and, uh, add it to your lexicon of, of, uh, terms that you can use when telling a story. Yay. The MacGuffin is a trope that upsets a lot of people, mm. but it is very, very effective in giving your characters a reason to, to move, to act, to, to go from point A to point B. So kind of keep that in mind. Um, the other thing that is important about the Maltese Falcon is a lot of film historians consider this the very first film noir movie. Okay. What does film noir mean? Me. Of course. Yes. Of course, course, Zach. This (laughs) is you supposed to learn. Did you not listen to the intro at Uh, the beginning of the show? No. I skip that part every time I listen. Um, (sighs) Film noir is... um, I'm going to... It's kind of like an era, so, like an era feeling. Uh-huh. All right. Uh-huh. What, what yeah, is, you're kind of, kind of in the right. You're in the right ballpark. Let me help you out. What, okay. is, what does noir mean? It's a French word that means. Crime. F- no. Dang it. <laughs> uh, cool, cool smoking guy. <laughs> let's see i'm just I'm, I'm so curious about siri with what siri can do oh, um, hold on let's see if siri can answer this question whoops um siri what does noir mean oh not noir <laughs> siri you well dumbass. that pretty much sums up siri <laughs> noir what does it mean but it won't find it either noir what does it mean? This might answer your question. <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it, uh, it's stupid Siri. Like, no wonder nobody likes Siri. G- this might answer your question, and it's just a gif of a kitten. <laughs> Basically. So, noir, <laughs> N O Y R, French word for. Did you look it up while uh, I was doing um, that? I was giving you time to stall, uh, uh, vamping the term for time. Film noir is French for black film. Okay, so black film. What do you think of when you think black film? Black and white. Okay. But what else specifically? Dark. Dark. Okay. So film noir are movies that are very dark, mm-hmm. very edgy, 
um, often dealing with borderline taboo topics, um, dark shadows, tough women, the femme fatale, um, strong heroes like Sam Spade. Mm-hmm. That's typically morally ambiguous yes, heroes, right? Morally ambiguous heroes. So this could be the very first noir film, film noir uh, movie, in that it is very dark, um, tells a story that you're only finding in detective stories, pulp books. Um, is that me? No, I think I hit some prompt. Oh, okay. Um, and so now you know what film noir means, right? And typically yes. we, when we look at film noir, we think black and white movies because mm-hmm. Dial in for Murder, uh, North by Northwest, Maltese Falcon – all shot in black and white, but Chinatown, Touch of Evil, Touch of Evil China, uh, Chinatown is a color movie, and you'll look at that, and that's a noir tale as well. So just kind but of keep that in mind. But 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 it was itself created as a as an ode. Oh, yeah, sure, as an homage to, to yeah, and to noir. Yeah, and it had John Huston in it. So there you go. <laughs> um, let's uh, take a quick break. Zach, and let us thank some people who made this show possible. Yes, let's thank all of the wonderful people who made this show possible. And those names this week would be Alistair Shields, Lee Goldberg, Kara Mosier, Pontus Hallen, Eric Waddell, Alex Springman, Joseph Smith, Christian Fisher, Ingrid Lind, John. Oh, I probably messed that one up. Ethan Martinez. Thank you for your donations to Major Spoilers and keeping shows like Zach on Film going each and every week for your enjoyment. And again, if you want to find out how you can uh, support this show or how you can get in on the ground floor of our members-only section, you can find out more at Majorspoilers.com. Help us reach our funding goat. So some some technique, Zach, what are some technique uh, techniques that you noticed in this uh, film that kind of lead into this uh, idea of what made this a the definition of film mm-hmm. noir. Um, one of the first kind of things I noticed was uh, shot angles. Mm-hmm. They did a lot of upshot angles, yeah. which was like, hey, I see a ceiling. I remember a movie that did this about this time period, Citizen Kane. I said, oh, hey, what time did Citizen Kane come out? Oh, it came out in September of 1941. Oh, the same year as this. What kind? What year did this one? Oh, a month later. Like, oh, that's... Because originally I said, oh, this drew from Citizen Kane. I said, well... Not really, because I don't get a month out of bar. Um, yeah, so um, Arthur Edison is the director of photography in this movie. Mm-hmm. Greg Tolan is the uh, cinematographer in Citizen Kane. Both of them using this this action. And just because it's Hollywood, it wouldn't surprise me if, as the production of both of these are going on, there isn't some communication going on between cinematographers right. um, and their guilds. Uh, but yeah, one of the interesting things we see about this, and somebody look up, one of you two look up really quick. Um, Humphrey Bogart's height. Look up Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart's Bogart. height. How tall was he? They actually just updated IMDb, so that's included on actor profile. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, oh, that IMDb. What it. won't it? Uh, Humphrey Bogart was 5'8". So a short guy, Zach. He's yeah. shorter than I am, okay? By about two inches. Yeah, that's very short. Small guy. Uh, in fact, they have a Humphrey Bogart furniture collection that I've checked out before. <laughs> it's... Even for someone of my height, it's uncomfortable to sit in, and I'm 5'10". Really? It's uncomfortable to sit in that furniture just because it's made for a smaller bodied person. Huh. And I think if you go back and you look at uh, the height of the average American male in 1940, you'll find that 
5758 was about that height. Hmm. So when you create very big, imposing, tall characters, as Sam Spade has described in the book, um, how do you convey that on film when you've got Humphrey Bogart, who's a relatively short person? Well, if you watch the Maltese Falcon and they're using those low angles Mm -hmm. and you're seeing Bogart in the scene and he looks like the ceilings right on top of his head, suddenly he becomes a much taller character on screen. Right. You know how tall Peter Lorre is? Probably like 4'11". He's 5'5". Five 5'5". Five. Five five. He's tiny. Yeah, he's a... Well, 5'5 five five isn't that short. Peter Lorre. Yeah, is pretty that's, short. That's, that's not that short. That's like a uh, Great Dane at the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what do you think of Peter Lorre? Just as a question, you, you've now watched Peter Lorre in two movies back-to-back, M mm-hmm. and now The Maltese Falcon. Hmm. I like him. I like the I like I really liked him here. Mm-hmm. Um, he didn't have to give a ginormous speech at the end. Uh, I think I think I really liked his character, and I especially liked how uh, he was portrayed as he could be. He kind of started off as somewhat serious in the mm-hmm. beginning, and that kind of just kept on fading, mm-hmm. fading. And, uh, that first scene where he's in there and he's uh, six up uh, Sam Spade and then Spade takes his gun from him and then they kind of talk everything out and they're all cool with each other and then he says, can I have my pistol back? Says, oh yeah, I forgot I even had this. And he gave it back. It's like, now will you please stand with your yeah. hands behind your back and he's in the room. I laughed so <laughs> yeah. hard at that point. I thought yeah. that was so funny. But do you notice how Joel Cairo's character just totally unravels by the time you hit the end of the film? I mean, he comes in and he's introduced yeah. as this very mysterious, dark character who's got it all together, mm-hmm. has a handkerchief that smells of gardenias. But as the movie progresses, he becomes a little bit more crazy, a little bit more threatening, a little bit more wild. And so we do see this character just kind of unravel as his world starts to become problematic when they're yeah. like, well, who are we going to turn in? The police need somebody right. for Thursby's murder. And he goes nuts. He goes nuts. Um He's willing to do anything to save himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's just a very interesting character development as we see the, the Laurie characters, uh, or the Joel Cairo character uh, develop throughout the film. Rodrigo, do you want to add anything else about uh, Laurie's uh, performance? Well, he always has a great ability to seem uh, like he's hiding something, I right, guess. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, just e- at every moment in this movie he is clearly looking out for himself and just does does a really great job of seeming really slimy mm-hmm. um and, love, and the I character mean, yes the character certainly helps i love his performance in in this movie oh absolutely I, I, although he does a great job in him mm-hmm. i i think this is his best performance and that being said people will say no wait casablanca was much better but I still like this. I still like this one. Um, going back to technique yeah. again, real quick, Zach, we're talking about what makes this noir. So first of all, you said the, uh, the low camera angles, uh, give us that upshot and make people appear more menacing. What else adds to this film noir concept? So we said black film, dark uh, film. Yeah. The, um, contrasty, very contrasty, the lighting, super high contrast. Yeah. yeah. Look at how they do the shadows. Everything in this movie is shadow, 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 mm-hmm. shadow, shadow. Um, probably a two to one contrast ratio in this 
in many of the shots. Two to one contrast ratio from or lighting ratio is where we're looking at the key light, the main source of illumination and how intense the shadow is compared to that um, to that light. So mm-hmm. if you have a fill light softening the shadows on one side, you might have a two to one ratio or a three to one ratio or four, four or five to one. And depending on the type of film that you're shooting, um, that lighting ratio will change. Uh, when we're talking film noir, dark film like this, it's not uncommon to have a two to one or three to one ratio. And that is pretty dark in the shadow areas. And of course, when you're telling a detective story, those dark shadows are where the bad guys are. Of course. And it really works. Now, if you watch that just from the lighting standpoint alone, the one scene that is not lit with a lot of, or where a lot of shadows are not used is in the lobby of the hotel. It's very brightly lit throughout, as in this is kind of a safe space for people to congregate, not have to worry about being uh, harassed. I mean, that's where we see uh, Wilmer and Sam Spade talk with one another. He calls over the house detective. The house detective knows who Sam Spade is. They give Wilmer some guff, send him on his way. Cairo comes in, does his thing after a night of whatever he's been doing, um, being harassed by the police or drinking or carousing or whatever he's been doing. Um, but everybody's very safe in there. No one's pulling guns on one another. No one's threatening one another. No one's shooting one another in this very brightly lit space. Mm-hmm. But everything else, not so much. Yeah. Even in Sam Spade's office, which is high contrast and use of light through the windows to cast the name of the yeah. agency on the floor. Great. Yeah. So lighting is very, very important when you're dealing with film noir. Angle's very important. What about editing? Anything you notice on the editing side? Editing seemed uh, pretty straightforward. It was a lot of establishing and cutback one-twos conversations, which was needed in this movie that mm-hmm. so much uh, conversation really did happen. It was it was interesting because um, I came from last week. You had me look up uh, Sergei Eisenstein, right? And so I was watching a lot of his and reading up on a lot of his montage techniques. And so well, tell I came us, into it. we said that we were going to make you do a report. Do you have your report ready? Uh, yeah, I can kind of talk a little bit about. Oh, Sergei Eisenstein a little bit. Montage editing. Yeah. Um, so what he developed was essentially a technique for editing film and it had different um, montage. There's like, I believe, five mm-hmm. different uh, montage styles. And, oh, let me pull them up. Because I'm not on my laptop. Why'd you run out of battery? Uh, yeah. Uh, they were uh, metric, rhythmic, tonal, overtonal, and intellectual. And so they're just essentially just different ways to edit your movie together to create a larger impact to the story. Because uh, Sergei uh, came a lot from theater, and his thoughts on theater were well, you don't necessarily need a lot of dialogue to tell a story. You tell mm-hmm. a story also through uh, the way people move and set design and everything else as it encompasses. But the, the focus on dialogue doesn't have to be the forefront. And that's what a lot he takes into his uh, filmmaking, which helped because a lot of his movies were in the silent era. Right. right. <laughs> which kind of helped. Right. Um, 
I, I I didn't I know he did some uh, essays and ha- spoke some thoughts on once film started being used in uh, once started audio started being using film, but I I didn't get a chance to read through those. So you watched some examples of some yeah Eisenstein I, I watched the Potemkin yeah Potemkin at mm-hmm. the steps of yeah Ogden or whatever mm-hmm. it was called and how. So the first time I watched it, and I I watched the clip right before I really read anything, just to see, oh, what kind of experimental, essentially, stuff he was doing. I got about, like, it's like a seven-minute clip, and I got like three minutes into it. I was like, why does this not seem so off the wall to me? I said, Mm -hmm. oh, it's because that's how films are edited now, and they can take... Take cutaways and they stretch essentially they're uh, stretching time out right and it's not happening in real time but he's taking time to show the individual aspects of the people running down these steps and mm-hmm. from the the uh, army cossacks mm-hmm. yeah cossacks what else anything else um i know there's in other of his styles there are some different aspects are used and i believe it's the intellectual montage style that will use uh, juxtaposition of pictures of what's happening on screen and it'll use cutaways to a different one. I don't remember which film that's, it was. but That's not Eisenstein. That was that Eisenstein? Was, um, that was uh, Kulchov, I believe, um, who did the experiment where you saw the casket right, and then you shot the woman who was Looked like she was crying, mm-hmm. or I'm sorry. There's shot of the casket, shot to a man with the same expression on his face, shot to a bowl of soup, cut back to the man with the same expression on his face, cut right. to a little girl, cut to the man, exact same expression of his face. And because of the way it's edited together, and because people's perceptions of tying these themes and ideas together, um, the uh, the audience interprets the emotion differently. So when they see the shot of the um, coffin and then Mm -hmm. the shot of the man the audiences are like oh my gosh you can see the grief in his eyes right then they cut to the shot of the bowl of soup and then back to the man they're like oh you can tell how hungry he is and then you cut to the little girl and then you cut back to the man he's oh look at all the passion and compassion that he has for this child thing was it is the exact same shot of the man Mm -hmm. used again and again and again i'm pretty sure that's that's cool that's cool um what i'm thinking of if you pull up um there's a clip on youtube where from his sergey's movie strike where it's about again people running away from dying and they're showing the army chase down this people and shooting them and they're cutting that in with a slaughterhouse of cattle Uh and then cutting them open and demonstrating the slaughter and i believe it's also demonstrating diet uh is that the diegetic is that one of the items in your montage theory? I, I think this one is the intellectual. Oh, okay. And so that one um, is, a, is a little different than normal. And then rhythmic and metric have a lot to do with the, uh, the beat of the movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, like, a movie should be almost cut in a manner that it flows like the... Uh, the pattern of a song, the beat measures of a song. Right. And did they talk about the, the Russian song? What is it? I think that's the song that he used to kind of demonstrate how you can edit to that. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, that's also kind of the same song that silent movie 
camera operators would use because they could keep if they kept that beat in their oh, head really? as they're cranking the film they, they could 24. keep it at a constant frame rate mm-hmm. uh throughout so interesting um did uh zach hit on everything with the uh the montage theory there uh rodrigo is he missing out on something uh, I honestly, once you once you mention Battleship Potemkin, any film buff will be sated and will retreat into his cave. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm good. All right, good. I, I think if um, when I started a lot when I started reading into it, a director that I initially thought of, and I haven't gotten to watch this movie, I didn't have time yet, but um, the Tree of Life mm, by. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, uh, 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 Aronofsky. No, no, that's, I'm thinking of the other one. Uh, gosh, dang it. Malik. Terrence Malik. Okay. Uh, where I really started thinking about how, um, Eisenstein talks about the editing of sequences in time to make sequences greater in that you have to worry about the editing of entire film and sequences to make middle sequences and past sequences and uh, future sequences better as a whole. I think is really displayed in Tree of Life in the manner that that's kind of thrown together. Okay. With the story and all the weird elements kind of thrown in there, especially then also with Eisenstein's uh, not need of dialogue in the forefront kind of comes through in Tree of Life also. All right. Good. So um, what then from, and hopefully we've talked a lot about, things that pop up here in um, the Maltese Falcon. Mm-hmm. What are you going to apply to your future endeavors? Um, well, I think we can look at uh, McGuffin mm-hmm. in a, from a writing aspect and for character motivations for a story and uh, just wrapping a plot around that and then looking at um, lighting styles to cast a certain mood and let that kind of direct the feeling of a story or some takeaways from Maltese Falcon. Okay. Anything else? Um, placement of people on the scene mm-hmm. because I, especially in the last bit inside the apartment, it, it's evident of how meticulous he goes through in placing everyone. And they said that he storyboard, storyboarded out this entire movie meticulously right, right. and had it completely down pat and then so that when they shot that they actually shot this movie in sequence that it was he just nailed everything and it was everyone was ready to go so storyboards story as i harp good. on how many times do i harp on storyboards all the time all the time storyboards are they, important especially when you when I, you get to my age and you think they're stupid that when the first time he talks about them and you get to this point you're like no, storyboards are like the best okay. thing in the world. <laughs> use them, Zach. Yeah. Use your storyboards. Did you use your storyboards in your final uh, project? Yeah. Did you? Yeah. For your commercial? Did you have to pitch them to your client? No. Okay. You know what? Maybe we should make that. Make, can we put those up on online for people to look at? My projects? Uh-huh. Can we put the the stuff you're doing for your final project? Your yeah, they're true. Um, I can tweet out some links and stuff. Okay. Or on the site or... So if you want to see these links, um, you can follow Zach at ZWolf, and I'll retweet. Yeah, okay. But you can follow Z Wolf, and he'll uh, at some point post a link to these uh, commercials that he's just uh, done for his final project, um, so he can graduate. Not graduate from this uh, podcast, of course, but graduate no. from college. Hopefully, he will yeah. never graduate from this podcast. Here forever. Uh, my, my student so loans next- are increasing every every episode. <laughs> 
All right, uh, Rodrigo, did uh, Zach get everything he's supposed to get out of the Maltese Falcon? I think so. Um, and I think if he goes back and watch it, watches it a couple more times, and actually, and he watches other noir films, um, then he will definitely start to see how this movie basically exploded that genre. And then maybe we can go back to German expressionism and talk about that. Okay. All right. Uh, it's going to be a while before we get back to a uh, German expressionism. Sure, but, sure. Zach, I think that you did pass this oh, week. Thank you. Good job. Um, you're starting to see things with a more critical eye. By the time this is done, by the time we hit every movie on this list, Rodrigo, um, mm-hmm. Zach's going to know more than we do. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think I it's... Mean, oh, you can finish, Rodrigo. Uh, I was, I was going to say, I kind of wish that I'd had, like, three people like yelling at me about movies back when I was in school. Oh, so like, do I. I think I would have I learned a lot more. Uh, when I was watching Iron Man 3 last weekend, I realized I was kind of becoming a, uh, I almost lightly used the term film, film snob. snob. I was yeah, like, yeah. God, I wish they'd stop using special effects. And yeah. I don't know. I'd rather just be watching like a black and white movie right now or something. I should go watch him. Huh? That's what I kind of thought of in the middle of Iron Man 3. You know what? <laughs> As, and we did give kind of a spoiler re- review of Iron Man 3 on um, issue 518 of the Major Spoilers podcast. If you want to go and take a listen to this, not to be spoilery or anything, but I thought the best visual elements of the film were the actual end credits where it was that awesome music, awesome editing and graphics all thrown together to make that really what the movie should have been. If they could have done, and of course people would argue, well, Ang Lee did that with the Hulk um, and how he transitioned Mm -hmm. from scenes and stuff. But that movie had a lot more, had a faster editing pace and had a lot more rhythm in those closing credits than the movie as a whole did. Those are cool credits. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't go for like the giant 3D stuff they kind of see in right, the right, Avengers right. and Captain right. American stuff. Yeah, it, it was good credits. I, I like that credit sequence. So good. All right, Zach, um, pass this week. Great. Next week, you're going to jump ahead a few years, about 20 years. We're taking a look at the Maltese. I'm not sorry, <laughs> the Maltese Falcon. We're taking a look at the Maltese Falcon again. No, we're taking a look at the Manchurian Candidate from 1962. Candidate. Manchurian oh, Candidate. The Manchurian Falcon. 1962. That one stars um, Murder, She Wrote. And I believe it also stars... <laughs> what? It does. Murder, She Wrote and Rat Pack. <laughs> Rat Pack and Murder, She Wrote. All star in The Manchurian Candidate. No, this one uh, stars uh, Frank Sinatra, Lawrence Harvey, Janet Lee, Angel Lansbury, uh, Henry Silva, uh, James Gregory. It is a political thriller, Zach. Ooh. And it's got some scary undertones as well. Great. So enjoy that, and we will talk about that next time on uh, Zach on Film. Yep, so that's going to wrap it up here. Thanks for listening for another episode of Zach on Film. If you would like to own your very own copy of the Maltese Falcon, might I recommend heading over to Majorspoilers.com, where you can uh, comment in the podcast section and give us your thoughts on the Maltese Falcon, and then click on, click on the Amazon link on the front page, where you can go to Amazon and shop to your, heart, shop to your heart's content and buy all your movie needs, including The Manchurian Candidate, or Maltese Falcon, or any other movies we've watched on Zach on Film and talked about. And a little bit of that will come back our ways, but no extra costs will be applied to you. So we would thank you if you shop through Amazon that way. So that'll wrap it up here, and make sure to come back next week as we talk Manchurian Candidate, Candidate I can't talk, and talk more films on Zach on Film.
the things I forgot to mention this week is I really wanted to talk about the Falcon itself and that uh-huh. it's modeled on a real bird. Um, really? um, the, the, what is it? The Nippenhausen Hawk, which was made in, uh, 1697 for George Wilhelm von, uh, Nippenhauser, um, for the Holy Roman, he was the Count of the Holy Roman Empire and now resides with the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. But it's supposedly encrusted with red garnets, amethysts, emeralds, sapphires all over this bird. Hmm. Um, there were only three, uh, models of the Maltese Falcon made for the movie. The first one was destroyed because Humphrey Bogart dropped it. <laughs> no. I know. Uh, so there were actually three. Two of them were 47 pounds. So, you know, when you're looking at them Jeez. carry the bird through the scene, yeah. they're actually carrying 47 pounds um, in a couple of those. Those were the lead ones. One of them was destroyed at the end of the movie because you saw Green Street slacking at it, slashing at it with his knife right. to show that it was lead. So one of them was destroyed. I think that one is at the Smithsonian now. Mm. The other one is in a private collection and sold for something like... $400,000 several years ago. It's not as much as they were hoping to in the movie. <laughs> well, uh, which, I think. Well, well, which is weird, you know, and, and kind of weirdly symbolic because it's like in the movie, the Falcon turns out to be fake. Right. Mm-hmm. So this fake Falcon is worth so much because it starred as a fake in a movie. <laughs> Total together of the three of the That's birds funny. that are remaining. The lead and resin falcons are valued in excess of $2 million. So all three of them? Uh, or two of them? The two of them. There is a great TED Talk that you need to go watch. I like TED Talk. Um, the TED Talk with uh, Adam Savage, the Mythbusters guy. Oh. Because you can't find the bird. And though there have been replicas made of this, you can go online, you can find little plastic replicas. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Savage wanted to build an actual sized model of the Maltese falcon. And he tells an incredible TED Talk story of how he tried to take measurements and sizes and comparing Humphrey Bogart to the size of the bird and how he cast it and how he built it. And it's just fantastic, especially, and I'm not, I won't spoiler the end of his TED Talk, but he goes through a lot of work and then has to do it again. And he says why. And when he tells you why, you're like, oh, duh. But it's a great TED Talk. And I would encourage you to go look that up. Okay. Uh, Just go look up Adam Savage. uh, Ted talk and, and I think he's only done one, so you should oh, be able yeah. to find it pretty easily. So, but I did want to mention that about the, uh, about the, the Falcon, because even the fake bird is worth more than the, uh, than the real bird is. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards. As we know it, if you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase. Shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details. 